going to go to the Lord in prayer. So let's just pray today. You know, I, I've been up really early this morning. My heart has just been uh, really locked into what I'm going to share today. So I want to pray that, you know, we will get a clear sense of what God wants to say to us. And I'm actually encouraged. I, I really am excited about pastoring our church and the people that come here and your heart for God. And I'm going to pray today that out of, out of this message that we will have a new determination to seek God's face, that we will walk in the way of wisdom. Isn't that good? And that we'll get to know God even better, and God will use us in a powerful way in the days forward. How many say, I really want God to use my life? And I believe as we keep walking with God, he's gonna do that for us. So Father, I pray today that you are gonna speak very powerfully in our lives and that you're gonna give us a sense of clear direction. There'll be such clarity today. As we listen to your word, may it become a living word to us. May it be a food for our soul, Father. And out of this message that there will be a longing, a passion, a hunger, a, a desire for you, maybe such as we've never had before. May it just continue to intensify. And that all of the other loves in our life will diminish in comparison to our love for you. And that we'll have our lives ordered rightly. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. 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 You may be seated. The nature of seduction. What is it? Well, it promises fulfillment without commitment and cost. Pleasures without responsibility and work, yet real fulfillment. What really satisfies requires diligence on our part. The problem with seduction in whatever form it takes is far more costly than we realize until it's too late. Seduction generally comes in the form of flattery that appeals to one's vanity. That's why it gets us every time. It's appealing to us. In the last couple of weeks, we've been walking through the book of Proverbs. I promise, next week I'll preach a Christmas sermon, okay? Because this, this series on Proverbs has been a little intense, but you know, I'm so locked into this book, I have been for about a year and a half, and I think it has so much to say to us at this time in our lives. So the last few weeks, we've examined the challenges, first of all, presented by sexual sin, and then last week I talked about living a prudent life. And I talked about how to handle you know, finances and talked a little bit about walking in integrity and not being, and to live a diligent life, not to be a lazy person. Remember I talked about the sluggard if you were here. Well, these temptations that need to be overcome appeal to a desire or a longing or yearning that's crying out for satisfaction within our soul. And one of the great problems of the church in the past has been to try and suppress desire and I see that as a big problem because God designed us with desire. How many know that's true? We have this longing. We have this yearning. The real problem is that so often we try to satisfy that longing with the wrong objectives. There's where our problem is. It's not the desire and the longing itself. It's where we're trying to fasten that to. This week, I want to examine Proverbs 7, which is a lengthy teaching regarding the nature of seduction of an unsuspecting youth. Now, I know it's a young man, but it could be a young woman, but I want to share more than just that. You know, we've examined a couple of weeks ago just the, 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 the sexual nature of it. I'm not going to focus so much on that today, okay? We've looked at that. I, I entitled that sermon, Fatal Attraction. Remember, some of you heard that. 
And then we talked, and you know, and that whole thing relates to chapter 2, verses 16 to 19, chapter 5, 1 to 23, at the end of chapter 6, verse 20 to 35, and yet again in chapter 7, and we can see it tailing off in chapters 8 and 9. And yet chapter 7 not only speaks of the same issue, but I think there's something even more significant transpiring here in this chapter. I think that we're going to see the issue on two levels, okay? So there's going to be a parallelism happening today. The first is a warning against being seduced and committing adultery, just on a physical level. I get that. And a lot of times when we read Proverbs, that's the level we see it at. And yet, I think there's something even more significant than that. And the other is what happens when we get involved in spiritual adultery. And when we commit it, we actually, what we're doing is being untrue in our covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus. And so it's very interesting, you know, the idea of idolatry, the idea of putting someone ahead of God. Because really, when we commit adultery, what, we, what are we really doing is putting someone ahead of our spouse. That's what we're doing. But you see, in a spiritual sense, when you and I have someone or some object or something trying to meet the longing and satisfaction in our life apart from Christ, what we're actually doing is committing spiritual adultery. Or another way of saying it is we're committing idolatry. And throughout the Bible, God uses that as a picture to explain to us what that's all about. Uh, now, I think we, false words are always the way of seduction. It, it, you know, we always think it's about physical attraction. Actually, we're going to discover that's not the real issue. It's the words. It's the communication that's so powerful. And now listen to what Paul says when he's writing. Here's the second level. Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and there's been people teaching, you know, and distorting the gospel. And they're presenting Jesus, but not the Jesus that you and I need to understand him as. Do you know a lot of people actually have a different Jesus than we have? There's the Jesus that other groups teach that deny his deity, deny that he's God in the flesh. There's a whole bunch of people that'll say that they believe Jesus, but they don't believe he's God. But that's another Jesus. You see, that's a distortion of who he is. Anytime you and I distort the person and work of Christ, we're actually buying into another Jesus. So Paul says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ. You see, there's a metaphor in the Bible that speaks when you and I become a child of God, when you and I receive Christ, we are actually coming into a covenant marriage with Almighty God. We are actually betrothed to God. We are one day going to have a consummation of that relationship and we're with him forever and ever. But he says, I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I may present you as a pure virgin to him. In other words, not defiled, living a blameless, holy life. That's a really powerful image. He says, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your pure devotion to Christ. Notice that those statements. See, this, is, this verse is speaking of the nature of seduction. We're going to talk about the serpent and how he came to the woman, how he used words to deceive her, and how often words are being used to seduce us and deceive us from our pure devotion to Christ. And if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preach, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you receive, notice spirit and spirit. One is minor, spelt with a small s, the other is spirit with a capital S speaking of the Holy Spirit. 
or a different gospel from the one you accepted. You put up with it easily enough. So Paul is warning us against a counterfeit, a distortion of the gospel, a spirit other than the Holy Spirit, a distorted understanding as to the person and work of Christ. He's really challenging us to remain true to God and not be seduced by some other gospel, some other words, some other picture, some other concept that's coming towards us. How many see that? Everybody see it? This is a simple idea, but we need to get it if we're going to understand what's going to happen. And then the, that's the New Testament. In the Old Testament, infidelity before Yahweh or God, that's the name of God, and the covenant between Yahweh and his people often was described as spiritual adultery. This is what Old Testament Leo Perdue in his commentary in Proverbs says regarding this chapter that we're going to look at today. Behind this figure, this strange woman who is an adulteress, may be a poetic, metaphorical description of something even more fundamentally dangerous to Judaism. Okay, he's, of course, Judaism, that's the Old Testament. The allure of foreign religion and culture. Do you know what the biggest problem Israel had as a nation? They kept compromising and embracing the idols of the people they lived amongst. They kept embracing those ideas and they incorporated that into their religion until they finally were compromised. And so when Elijah comes on the scene, he says, how long will you halt between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, worship him. And if Baal is God, worship him. But don't integrate and create a syncretistic religious viewpoint. Because God is a jealous God. He knows that if you and I somehow water down what we actually believe, we're actually moving away from the actual truth and actual wisdom until finally it affects our lives and we become distorted. And pretty soon we are gullible and take in all kinds of junk that's going to be destructive to us. He says, while most of this instruction consisted of a warning to students against a sexual dalliance with this enigmatic figure, it should be noted that sexual seduction is also used metaphorically elsewhere in the Old Testament to illustrate a graphic, in graphic terms religious apostasy and cultural assimilation. That means they're just being swallowed up by the culture around them. The very real temptation of being lured away from their covenant relationship with God by being assimilated by a dominant culture is a theme throughout the Bible. How many have read the book of Daniel? What's going on there? Daniel is brought into captivity and the dominant note is Daniel is trying to remain true to his faith in a culture that's dominated by paganism. Isn't that true? And you read the amazing story of Daniel standing strong in the midst of this tremendous pressure and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are called to worship the false god that Nebuchadnezzar raises up. And they said, you know what? There's a god in heaven and we cannot do this. We will not compromise. And he lights that blazing furnace. And they said, even if God doesn't deliver us, we're not going to deny him. But we want you to know God can deliver us. And we know the story. They were thrown into that blazing furnace. And all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar saw four men walking instead of three. And he called them out. And they were neither destroyed. They were neither singed. They neither smelt like smoke. In other words, God preserved them. And it's a picture for us to learn that God can preserve us in the midst of the trials that we're going to experience. These fiery trials that are going to come because you and I decide we're not going to compromise. So what is the teacher, the father in this text trying to convey his son, one who has already embraced the way of wisdom, that there are subtle temptations to the unsuspecting. And the means of conveying that subtle temptation 
is very fascinating. The wisdom literature is strong on taking practical observations of life and conveying a powerful spiritual message. You know, and as I've already said, one of the great challenges in the church has been how to address this issue of sexual desire. Often the church in the past tried to repress this impulse, yet this is not the biblical approach. I like what C.S. Lewis says. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. But I would say they're just primarily misdirected. What we need to do is take those strong desires and longings and apply them properly to the right ends. And what we're about to discover in Proverbs 7 is the Father talking about where our desires ought to be directed and not just away from. Ola Singerson points out that desire is not incidental to human thought or action, but a prominent feature of human existence as such. You take away desire and you take away what makes us who we are. Human desire for money, power, sex has a tendency because of human frailty and sinfulness to become a substitute for the love of God. Isn't that the truth? But as human beings, we are created for the love of God. And so our desire becomes distorted when we love created things instead of God. Disordered desire means that we are no longer masters of ourselves, but the things we desire become our masters. That's the problem. And when our desire is ordered by the love of God, we're free to love what is created, perhaps including even ourselves. Wouldn't that be amazing? Because you see, how can you love anything, anyone else if you can't even love yourself? See, I think we have to have the right understanding. We have to love God above everything. And then we get a right ordering inside of our lives. And we begin to love things correctly. So... True human freedom is accomplished through the love of God since this love liberates us from the tyranny of things to the true use of things. Rather than, you know, things use us, we get to use the things. Rather than using people, we get to love people in the right way. It's so powerful because we have the right love, a love for God. So let's take a look today. I'm gonna look at just two key elements in avoiding the seduction of this world, the folly that's being thrust at us every single moment of every single day. How do we, how do we embrace wisdom and avoid the seduction of folly and the seduction of the things of this world? And the first one is the need to desire and enjoy wisdom. And basically, when I'm talking about wisdom, let me just explain something to you. I'm talking about wisdom as a person. Now, in the Old Testament, it was called lady wisdom. We'll get into why. But really, wisdom, for us, our wisdom is Christ. So I'm really talking about developing a heart after God, a desire and a love for Almighty God. You know, how many know it's hard? I've said this many times, but I know it's true. It's hard to tempt a person who's content. You know, they're satisfied, right? One of the goals of all advertisement is to create a sense of discontentment. And so every day, we are getting imagery coming at us so quickly and fast, designed to create dissatisfaction inside of our souls. Isn't that sad? You know, doesn't that annoy you a little bit? These guys are trying to make me unhappy and tell me that I lack something, that I need this product that I actually really, most of the time, don't need. Right? Come on now. You see? But if you believe that what you have is greater than what is being offered the temptation to abandon what you have and to desire what's being offered becomes ineffectual. In other words, you don't buy it because you don't need it. True? 
So I'm going to talk about why is it that we, we get seduced? Why do we get sucked in? So here are the words of the father to his son. Let's turn to chapter 7, verse 1. We're going to look at these verses all the way down the chapter. And I'm going to bring another verses too. So chapter 7, verse 1, he says, My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Number one, how are we going to develop the right kind of a heart? We've got to store up God's word. We've got to spend time with God. We've got to cultivate this relationship. Verse 2, keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. How many know the apple of our eye is the center of our eye? This is, you know, you and I as human beings instinctively will protect our eyes. Do you realize that? If I walk up to you and move my hands really quickly to your eyes, you're gonna, your eyes will close. It's instinctive inside of us to protect our eyes. What is he saying? He says, guard my teaching to the way you would protect your eyes. In other words, this needs to become just second nature to us. We need to somehow spend time in the word of God, master the word of God, let it feed our soul to such a degree that it just becomes a part of our framework. Do you know what happens when you do this? this you're gonna love this. When you and I are... You know, every day, that's why I just tell people, if you can get in the Word of God every day, you're going to be a totally different person. It's going to change how you think, and how you think, you actually begin to behave in a certain way. And all of a sudden, you're going to start acting differently towards situations that previously you used to get frustrated and angry and upset about. And all of a sudden, you're going to go, wow, I didn't even get uptight about that. What's going on with me? The word of God is now taking root inside of your life. You're beginning to see the situation differently. It's very powerful. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. We notice here the words of the Father in contrast to the words we're about to hear a little later on in the chapter. This unfaithful wife who becomes a seductress. The only way to overcome seduction is that we have something so ingrained within our hearts that we recognize the temptation for what it is. We see wisdom as important to us that we learn to protect it and value it, even as, as I've said, we instinctively protect our eyes. We need to value wisdom. So I think we need to enjoy the real thing. That's what I'm saying. You see, if you get caught up in the false thing, you know, some people, if you just keep eating uh, candy and unhealthy food, you develop a craving for that and you develop an appetite. How many know that's true? But after a while, if you wean yourself from that and you eat healthy food for a long time and you don't eat any junk food, I'll tell you what will happen. The moment you eat junk food, your body will go, what are you doing to me? It's getting real quiet in here. I know, I like junk food too, but I'm just telling you, it's not good for, as good for you as the healthy food. And we all know that, right? But if you keep eating just really healthy food, your body's going to react to the unhealthy stuff. That's what I'm saying. So we are feeding our soul the good stuff. Now, Paul Koptek, who focuses on the simple warning of adultery in marriage, challenges us to examine our sexual desires and submit them to careful reflection. I like this. Psychologists tell us that extramarital affairs are not primarily about sex, but about personal issues that are being swept under the rug. Affairs are often motivated by problems that do not receive the attention they require. This is very fascinating. It's not about the other person, it's about ourselves. For some, the exhilaration of an affair compensates for a sense of inadequacy in other areas of life. For others, it's a mean to avoid honest relationship with one's spouse. Is that powerful? 
So, you know, we have to take a look at why we're doing what we're doing. And I, I, he's just pointing out, psychologists tell us the reason why we are doing the wrong thing is because we have a problem we're not addressing in our lives. It makes total sense. In other words, it's a form of escapism from doing the hard work of addressing real issues. And these issues are heart issues. What is shaping our hearts? What shapes our hearts are the values that we're embracing. The battle today is over who or what is shaping us and our hearts, over what we're going to value. How many know not all ideas are equal? That's true. They're not all equal. And they'll not all bring life to us. Some are deceptive and filled with empty promises and lies which are designed to deceive us. Now that Hebrew word for wisdom, chokmah, and it's, it's, it's the feminine form. See, it's, you know, in some languages they have masculine and feminine. English doesn't, but Hebrew does. So the word wisdom is in the feminine form, and that's why the wisdom writers speak of wisdom as a woman. She's woman wisdom. And here we find in chapters 8 and 9 that woman wisdom is trying to speak to the inexperienced in order to deliver them from woman folly which is trying to seduce them. So how many are getting a sense now that the father is creating an image of two women? One, he needs to love and embrace. The other is out to destroy him. And he's trying to point the danger. Not all women are equal. Wisdom and folly are certainly different. Verse, chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? There's a contrast here between the twilight hours of the adulterous woman we're going to see in chapter 7 who's seeking to destroy a life and woman wisdom who speaks from the heights beside the gates leading into the city in the openness of broad daylight crying out her message. And what is her message? At the highest point along the way where the path meets, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city at the entrances, she cries aloud. To you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Set your hearts on what? On wisdom. Listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what is right. My mouth speaks what is true, for my lips detest wickedness. Now, how many see that wickedness is speaking to the entire community? This is not done in a little secret dark closet. This is, you know, God is basically saying, I'm calling out to all of humanity to listen to my word. Isn't that what he's doing? Of course. He wants us all to heed. He wants us all to listen. He wants us all to respond. He wants us all, I'm going to say this, he wants us all to be happy but happy in a way that is correct because he knows that we, we define what we think will make us happy. But the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a person, but it leads to death. God knows the right way to happiness. So if I follow God's way, it's the right way to be happy and to be blessed and to experience the good things of this life. But we know there's another voice trying to seduce us. Notice the relationship that we need to develop with wisdom. Verse 4. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and the insight, you are my relative. Well, what does this actually mean? Richard Clifford and other scholars agree that this is speaking of the intimacy of a husband and his wife. He writes, my sister and friend, this is Clifford's words, is the language of courtship and love. See, we think of sister as my biological sister. But in the love poetry language, the sister is actually your wife. 
These verses urge the son to make wisdom his companion and lover, and she will protect him from the forbidden woman. Isn't that beautiful? You want to avoid folly? Embrace wisdom. That's what he's telling us. The point is the same as in chapter 5. The right woman will protect you from the wrong woman. In chapter 5, the right woman is the wife. But in chapter 7, the right woman is woman wisdom. Isn't that beautiful? And I agree with him. It's powerful. The relationship will protect us from the seduction of woman folly. Now, you remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked about fatal attraction. It reminded us, for those who were not here, that sexual seduction and adultery is curbed when we develop a deep appreciation for our spouse. So we need to value the person God brings into our lives. And I said it, it goes both ways. Let's move past gender. You know, women should you know, value their husbands and husbands should value their wives. You know, don't look for the things that are wrong. Look for the things that are right. Novel thought, <laughs> right? Don't let the little things irritate you, but look past those things to see the value that that person has. And really, when we're married, one of the things that we're trying to do is help each other become better people. That should be the goal. If I really love my wife, Patty, I will do everything I can to help her to become a better person. That should be my goal, if I really love her. You see, and then I talked, if we were single, we need to understand that we have an exclusive relationship with Jesus, and until... We are married, we will remain celibate, which means that we're not going to have sex before marriage. And I know this is really, you know, it seems like coming from a different time zone and a different set of values because everything we get bombarded with today says the opposite of this. But let me point out 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 through 8. I spoke on that two weeks ago. It speaks powerfully and clearly this message of sexual abstinence and self-control in order not to defraud one another. So this wayward woman is a metaphor for how our culture has abandoned God and tries to seduce us away from our relationship with God, which is woman wisdom. Notice how woman folly tries to copy woman wisdom by going to the high points of the city. And in the ancient world, temples were built on the highest points in the cities. Some of you came with me to Israel. Remember we went to Beth Shean? You remember way on top there was a temple. That was a Roman city at the very highest point. That's where the temple was. You see, that's what they did. The ancients built on high points. And you can still remember that Solomon, when he you know, moved away from worshiping God, what did he do? He started building temples at the high places of the city. You know, The temple was built on Mount Zion, but Jerusalem has many high points, and so they started building temples on other high points in the city. Let's take a look at what it says about woman folly in chapter 9. Folly is an unruly woman. She's simple and knows nothing. Well, that's pretty a slam, you know. She doesn't know anything. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, and I want you to notice that word, no sense. I'm going to get back to that term. Those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there and that our guests are deep in the realm of the dead. In other words, this is the pathway to destruction and death. Okay, so the promise of stolen waters or experiencing pleasures that are outside the boundaries that God set up for our lives don't bring life. They may bring momentary enjoyment, but ultimately they're gonna bring death and destruction. Let me move, so the ability, oh, okay, I'll move on. The second element in embracing wisdom is to understand the seduction of folly. 
So first of all, primary safeguard against it, love wisdom. Embrace her. Pursue it. In other words, we're going to set our hearts on seeking God. That's the antidote. But let's go to here. We understand the nature of this seduction. And why is it so powerful in our lives? And why does the father convey the message to his son to be on guard for this treachery? In other words, what can we learn from his narrative? Now, you know, how many know story is an important form of teaching people lessons? So he starts to tell a story. Look at verse 6. At the window of my house, I looked through the lattice. You know, they didn't have, when I go to India, they don't have glass over their windows. It's open. They have lattices. In the Middle East, that's what they had. You look out the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men a youth who had no sense. Notice that word again. You know that word for no sense is literally, I looked it up, no heart. You see, when you read it in the Hebrew, it says no leb. Leb is heart, which is speaking to the condition of his heart. This person lacked judgment or discernment. In other words, he was a person whose heart was not where it needed to be. Now, what does God tell us? Trust in me with all your heart. Proverbs chapter 4 and uh, verse 23 says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. We know what the heart stands for. The heart is not, you know, just the organ that's pumping blood in our bodies. No, the ancients actually saw this as the essence of the core of our personality. It speaks of our mind, our emotions, our will. It's our soul. It's, it's who we are. He says, now that we know the condition of our heart, we find the context of seduction. In other words, if we have a right heart, we're not going to go wrong. But many times the reason we're going wrong is because our hearts are wrong. And what needs to change is our heart. And God says to us and invites us, says, give me your heart. I love that. Give me your heart and I will change it and I will make it right. And that's what salvation is. If you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead and you confess with your mouth, you shall be saved. How many see it starts with the right heart? It starts right there. And God is challenging us to give our hearts to him. You know, I was praying this morning. I got up really early, 4.30, and was working on this message. I worked on it all day Wednesday, all day Saturday. And then I was on it this morning, and I was saying, I just need a, you know, some way to get it through. And I was reading my own devotional time. I was just waiting on God. And I read about King Rehoboam. And this is my devotional Bible. So I use the Holman Christian Standard translation, just a different translation. Notice what it says. Rehoboam did what was evil because... He did not determine in his heart to seek the Lord. The NIV says he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. What does that tell you? That if you and I have the right heart, how do I get the right heart, Pastor? I'm determined to pursue God. I'm determined to go after woman wisdom. I'm enamored with Christ. I love God with all my heart. When you and I do that, all of a sudden, the things of this world get, on, they get the right perspective. But if we don't do that, our hearts get wrong, and then we're very susceptible to doing evil. And that evil doesn't just affect other people negatively, but it also destroys us in the process. That's the tragedy. It says here in verse 8, he was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house. At twilight, I think that's very appropriate, twilight, as the day was fading 
as the dark of night set in. How many know the Bible loves to use pictures? Do you know light and darkness? There's a lot of meaning here being said. In the physical description, we're gaining a sense of the moral context of the situation. In the Bible, night speaks of the context of what? Wickedness and evil. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians, he says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as what? Children of the light, not children of the darkness. You know? Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of what? Darkness but rather expose them. The description of the seductress and her motive, verse 10, then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with, listen to this word, crafty intent. Do you know there's another time I read that word crafty? Do you know where I find it? In the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter three, it says, now the serpent was what? More crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. I think that's very fascinating. It was the serpent that seduced the woman because of what the serpent said. That's right, what he said. I want you to pay attention to that. Now, listen to this, what happens with this woman. Verse 11, she's unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. I could say a lot more about that, but I won't go into it. Now in the streets, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. Here we find her activity. Verse 13, she took hold of him, kissed him, and with a brazen face she said, today I fulfill my vows. I have food from my fellowship offering at home. Doesn't she sound spiritual? She is spiritual. But you know, there's a form of godliness, but it denies the power of God. So I came out to meet you and I found you. I think she just came out to meet whoever would show up. And whoever was foolish enough to hear her, she's going to seduce. It's not like she said, you're the, my one and only. As we're going to find out, she's had many one and onlys. Okay. She says, I have covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. And Richard Clifford says, as a conversation starter, today I have fulfilled my vow Seems rather strange to a modern ear, right? Somebody walks up, I've just fulfilled my vow. Doesn't sound like something we'd normally say, right? But the youth understands as an invitation to a feast where meat from an animal killed and fulfillment of a vow was on the menu. You see, when they sacrificed the animal, the partaker, the one that was giving the sacrifice, the one that brought the animal, not only gave some to the priest, but they also took some of the meat home and enjoyed it. There was a benefit to them too. And usually there was so much meat. And because in those days they had no refrigeration, what do you think they did? They had to eat it quickly. Within a day or two, they had to eat this food. Otherwise, it would spoil. And so they usually invited guests. It was a festive moment. And so she's telling this youth, listen, we're going to have a party. Let's party, she says. And today, I hear that all the time. You know, a lot of people, they're just living from party to party to party. They have no idea where this is going to end up. Since the sacrifice, I've already said that. You know, the tragedy of this whole story is that the youth in this narrative is actually going to become the sacrifice. You see, there's a little bit of an irony being played out in the story. This is her proposition in verse 18. Come, let us drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy yourself with love. 
I would have another term for that word. It's not really love. It would be lust. My husband's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be back till full moon. In other words, he took enough money. He's going to be gone for a while. We can do this. With persuasive words, she led him astray. Notice it's the words, not her appearance, that are leading him astray. She seduced him with her what? With her smooth talk. You know, remember in the other chapter, her lips were like oil. They were dripping honey. They were saying everything he wanted to hear. The consequence that followed. Look at verse 22. All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. How many, just look at the, look at the way this is being described. He's like an ox going to the slaughter. He's like a deer stepping into a noose until an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare little knowing it will cost him his life. In other words, he's like a dumb animal. He doesn't know that he's being trapped. He's being snared. He thinks everything's okay, but the moment he gets to that place of execution, he's going to be slaughtered. He is the sacrifice. The father's relating that like these animals, he's unaware that his life is going to be taken from him. The warning in verse 24. Now then, my son, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. You know, it's so sad that we have so many people not listening. So many people not paying attention. He says, pay attention to what I'm saying. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Do not let your leb, your heart. How many catching on? This is your heart. The essence of who you are. Don't go there. Listen to the Apostle Paul calling us to have the right kind of heart. I love, I'm going back to the New Testament. He says this, I urge you brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, if you read Romans carefully from chapters 1 to 11, it's talking about all that Christ did for us. Beautiful. But he says, in light of what Christ has done for us, Offer your bodies. Notice he didn't just say offer your minds, offer your thoughts. No, he's saying I want all of you. I want all of you as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I want you to think about that for a minute. What is worship? The offering of myself to God. You know, when we come on Sundays, that's part of it. This is a part of worship. You're offering yourselves to God. You're coming and you're spending time with God with other believers. That's great. That's wonderful. But really, God's calling you to 24-7, 365 days a year. He says, give me yourself. Give me your heart. Give me the essence of who you are. That's what true worship is. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't listen to woman folly. That's what he's saying. Can you see the wisdom words here? He's saying, don't get sucked in by her. Don't get sucked in by the value system of our culture. Do you think that people today are so much smarter than they were in the ancient times? Do you know what I think's happening today? I think we're being deceived. I think because we have so much more technology and we've had scientific breakthroughs, we assume that this generation is so much wiser and smarter than all the other generations. And so we have become full of ourselves. It's conceit, it's arrogance. 
He says, don't be conformed to what the society around you is crying out towards you to embrace and all of its value system. And folks, we are getting so much garbage coming at us at such a high speed, it's unbelievable. But he says, rather than being squeezed into its mold, that's the Phillips translation, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, is good, pleasing and perfect will. You know, God has a purpose to discover that's the most important thing. Verse 26, chapter seven in Proverbs. He says, this is what happens when you listen to woman folly. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. In other words, it's a multitude that have heard her voice, have been seduced by her and actually have been destroyed by her. Her house is a highway. Remember when she said, you're the, my only? Oh, no. Her house is a highway. It's a gateway to the grave, leading down to the chamber of death. How I many is that sad? How I many that's an amazing imagery? I don't know. This is poetry, folks. You know, we're reading poetry. That's why I'm trying to bring out some stuff. But isn't that poetry powerful? He's basically saying if you listen to her and you go into that house, you'll never come out. You will be ruined. You'll be destroyed. Wow. Strong language. Don't even go there, my son. It's ruined so many people's lives. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to physically not walk out of the house. It doesn't mean he's not going to be, he's going to be physically dead. No, what it means is his heart is going to now be in the wrong place. His desires are going to be pursuing after that which is fatal to his eternal well-being. That's what we're talking about. We need to see this warning on two levels. On the literal physical level, it's a warning against being seduced by adultery. You know, I like what Paul Coptic said. He said, hey, listen, if you're tempted in this area, maybe you gotta take a hard look at yourself and say, hey, what issues am I, not, am I running from and I'm not addressing in my life? What relational tensions am I not resolving with the spouse of my youth? Because folks, we're gonna all have to work through things in our relationships. Come on now. Tomorrow's my 30, 41 years of being married to Patty. You have to work through things. You have to work through things. Right, George? How many years? 60. Now, George, you had to work through, I know because I've talked to George. You've had to work through things. Isn't that true? There had to be forgiveness. There was misunderstandings, of course. Okay. But we have seen here that there's a spiritual level that applies to all of us who are believers in a covenant relationship with God. We who are followers of Jesus are in a marriage union with him. We are his bride. And the culture around us is constantly trying to seduce us and embrace its value system. That's contrary to God's word, which is wisdom. What can I do to protect myself, Pastor? Determine in your heart to seek God. Make that the number one priority. Make God your deepest love. And I'll, I promise you something. You will love your spouse better. You will love your children better. You will love the people of God better. You will even love the people that you work with better. You are going to love everybody better. You see? Because what we need is wisdom. 
And that only comes from God. Let's stand. I want to have you bow your heads as we go to the Lord in prayer here. I want to just pray with you this morning and give you an opportunity to respond because I believe that God wants to bring about transformation in our lives. You know, every Sunday I pray, number one, that you would encounter the true and the living God, that you would experience him, you would hear his voice, that you would respond to his call to you, that you would walk in this path of wisdom, and avoid the broad road that leads to destruction. It's a narrow path, I admit. But there's protection and love and hope and well-being and blessing. And I've been on that path for a long time now. And I can tell you, it's a good path. I'm not saying it's an easy path. It's not. But it's a good path. Because our Savior is on that path with us. And maybe you're here today and you say, you know, Pastor, this is so profound, this poetic passage in the book of Proverbs. I can see that there's a picture being played out for me here. And maybe I've never embraced the path of wisdom. Let's start there. But I want to. I want to, I want to come into a relationship with wisdom. I want to come into a relationship with God. I want to know this Jesus who's the Savior of the world and is a Redeemer and will save me from my sins and give me the right order of life and the right priorities so that I can be successful in this life. That's where success comes from, is in knowing God. And maybe you're here today and you say, I don't really know, but I want to. And that's you today with every head bowed. Just raise your hand, I'm gonna pray for you this morning. Anybody here? That's you. Okay, God bless you. Yes, some of you are raising your hands. That's good. Wonderful. I'm gonna tell you what I'm gonna have you do. After I pray and we leave this morning at the guest reception area, there are people there, they'll pray with you and they'll give you a little booklet that'll explain how to walk with God. Okay, that's very important. Go there and get that booklet and let somebody talk to you and pray with you. Number two, you're a child of God this morning. You know that, but you can say, you know, pastor, wow, this really brought clarity to my mind. I can see that there are many things that are trying to seduce me from the primary thing. And you know what? I don't want to be a worldly Christian. I want to be, I want to set my heart on seeking God. Let's, take, let's do it in a positive way. That's you this morning. You say, you know what? From this day forward, I'm just going to keep setting my heart on seeking God. I've determined in my heart on seeking God. So I'm going to raise my hand. That's my heart. I want to set my heart. I'm determined to seek the face of God because I know it'll keep my heart from evil, from me doing evil for me being seduced by the, the attractions that society is bringing around me, success, fame, popularity, money, power, whatever it is. All right, so many of us are raising our hands, good. Maybe you're here today and say, you know, pastor, I need to be forgiven. I have been seduced, but you know what? I can see it at the highest level. I have not been faithful to God, and today I wanna come back to the path of wisdom. Maybe you've backslidden. And today's your day. You say, you know what? I'm going to come back. That's my decision. Raise your hand. That's you this morning. God is going to respond to that cry. See, he sees the cry of our soul. And that's been my prayer. I said, Lord, could you bring as many backsliders to church as possible? So many people that have struggled with you to hear what the heart of the issue is. It's our hearts. And if we will set our heart on seeking you and determine in our heart to do that, it's going to change our lives. So Father, I pray for each group today that has responded to you 
You know the response. You see our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would establish us, that you'd forgive us, that you'd restore us, that you'd bring uh, the spirit of regeneration if we're a brand new person. We want to give our lives to you, Lord. May the spirit of the living Christ now come within us as we call out to you and say, Lord, come into my life. Come into my heart. And I'm determined from this day forward to seek your face, to know your will, to walk in your ways, to do your purposes. I pray, Lord, that you're going to use the people's lives in this congregation way beyond anything they could have ever thought or imagined. And my prayer has been this morning that every person that comes from this congregation would be wise and would be used of Almighty God to be leaders and impactors and influencers in our community and in our nation, that, Lord, from this congregation, you're going to raise up great leaders because they have their hearts set on you and they're going to walk in wisdom. And I thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.